Good afternoon, everyone, and good evening to those of you who are looking in from Europe. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. The virus that causes COVID-19 has now become endemic after first emerging two and a half years ago. In the pandemic's early days, many countries' public health officials curtailed economic and social activity to various degrees, prescribed social distancing, enforced lockdowns, required masking, and pushed for other non-pharmaceutical or NPI interventions to reduce illness and death. Those NPIs imposed an enormous economic and social cost by greatly reducing individual liberty in exchange for promised health benefits. Elsewhere, most famously in Sweden, public health officials were fiercely criticized for implementing less harsh so-called light touch NPI measures. Sweden's approach presents a fascinating quasi-natural experiment to evaluate the merits and demerits of the more liberal approach to managing the COVID-19 pandemic and to evaluate whether the loss in personal and economic freedom was partly compensated by a decrease in illness and death. In February 2022, the Corona Commission, an independent third-party commission set up by the Swedish government, under pressure from Sweden's parliament, concluded the government's strategy of not introducing lockdowns, as many other countries had done, was, quote, fundamentally correct for maintaining individuals' personal freedoms over those in other countries. But the commission was critical of the decisions not to introduce, quote, more rigorous and intrusive disease prevention and control measures in February and March of 2020. It also said that the government had delegated too much responsibility to the Public Health Agency of Sweden and the responsible bodies for decision-making were not always clear. Figures from Eurostat, the European Union Statistics Agency, showed Sweden had 7.7% more deaths in 2020 than its average for the preceding four years, but that was among the lowest excess mortality rates in Europe. Sweden's outcomes on viral spread, excess mortality, and the socioeconomic consequences of COVID-19 compare well with other countries and suggest that strict NPI policies impose more harm than good. Yet Sweden's policy still has its critics. As recently as March of 2022, a group of scholars from Sweden, Norway, Belgium, and the US co-authored a lengthy literature review and commentary in the journal Nature, in which they claimed, quote, Sweden's public health agency was systematically incorrect in their risk assessments and ignored scientific evidence on suppression strategies, airborne transmission, pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic spread, face masks, children in COVID, long COVID, and insufficiently implemented and adapted their pandemic response plan, which was constructed for an influenza pandemic. It went on to state the precautionary principle, which is in fact written into the EU's function, has been ignored since a wait and see passive approach has been followed. Sweden never aimed at suppressing transmission of infection only to not overwhelm healthcare, contrary to the advice of the WHO and the European CDC, close quote. In the review, which was cited by LA Times business columnist, Michael Hilsick, the authors pointed to data showing Sweden had significantly higher rates of COVID deaths per million population than its Scandinavian neighbor, country, neighbor countries. Joining us to discuss just how well Sweden's approach worked are Gene Lenzer, a medical investigative journalist and former associate editor of the BMJ. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, Smithsonian, and Scientific American, among other outlets. And she's the author of The Danger Within Us, a book about bad medicine and medical devices. 
Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH, an epidemiologist and public health analyst who, at the beginning of August, was promoted from associate professor to full professor of, at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. Congratulations, Vinay. Jay Bhattacharya, MD, PhD, an epidemiologist and professor of health policy at Stanford University School of Medicine, a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and author of the Great Barrington Declaration that urged, a co-author of it, that urged a pandemic policy of focused protection. Dr. Bhattacharya received both his MD and his PhD in economics at Stanford. And Joan Norberg, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, who resides in Stockholm, Sweden, and has studied and ex as well as experienced his country's pandemic policy and comes to us live tonight from Stockholm, Sweden. After each of our experts share their thoughts, we'll engage in a conversation and take questions from viewers. Please submit your questions on the Cato event website or on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag Cato Health. Gene, you and Shannon Brownlee co-authored an article in the Washington Monthly last April entitled, What Sweden Got Right About COVID, that I must admit inspired me to organize this event. So let me ask you to start things off. Before I talk about what we talked about in the article, and that is I don't think I'm saying anything controversial to say that um, COVID in the United States has been an unmitigated disaster. Um, old people died, aged people died, nurse aides and nursing homes died. Um, children were thrown out of schools, many of them didn't attend any form of schooling for the last two years. Um, and this is despite um, very active lockdowns, um, school closures, business and restaurant closures, and mass mandates. And despite all our efforts, we're still feeling the um, effects of this pandemic two and a half years on, and these are repercussions we'll probably be feeling for years to come. So the question is, could we have done better? And one way to answer that question is to look at how other wealthy peer nations uh, fared. Did they do better or did they do worse? And if they did, what did they do differently that we can learn from? And when public health experts in the media started looking at this question, um, although it was quite fairly widely accepted in the United States as very poorly, um, there was one country that everybody piled on about and said was, a, was itself the real unmitigated disaster, um, and that was Sweden, and um, that we would not want to emulate the um, uh, way that Sweden managed the pandemic. Uh, Sweden only closed schools for two weeks, and after that, teachers and children up to the age of 16 were back in the classrooms. They didn't close businesses or restaurants. Um, and reports were coming back that because of this, quote, light touch approach, that they were so reckless that more of their elderly population died than in other countries. And the New York Times blasted Sweden's uh, approach as a, quote, cautionary tale. And the medical community, by and large, echoed this kind of um, attitude about Sweden. Um, experts who tried to dissent from that prevailing wisdom were attacked and sometimes silenced, as were journalists. And then in the middle of all this, in April 21, the Kaiser Family Foundation released a study, and that's the study that Shannon and I reported on. And that study, contrary to prevailing wisdom, found that Sweden did extremely well in protecting its population during the COVID pandemic. So the question is, how is it that the Kaiser report could vary so, so much 
from what everyone else was reporting, from all the other reports, studies, and analyses. How could they have come up with such a different answer? And the answer to that question rests with the metric that was used. And it turns out that counting COVID deaths is actually a lousy method. That's because, you know, countries have different populations and a country could do everything right in terms of public health measures and still have a lot of COVID deaths because they have a much larger elderly population. Or conversely, they might do um, better in terms of COVID measures, COVID deaths, if they're so poor that everyone dies before they're at the age that people die of COVID and instead they're dying of starvation and other diseases. Um, urbanization also affects us. So COVID deaths doesn't really, we can't use that to tell us how a country's doing. It's only telling us what was going on at baseline. So what the Kaiser uh, folks did is they looked at a completely different metric in order to address the question of how the interventions affect the population. You wanna look at the downstream effects or side effects because every medical intervention, every public health intervention has a downstream effect or a, a side effect, if you will. And um, so they looked at what is called excess mortality. And to measure that, what they did is they looked at uh, 11 wealthy peer nations, and they looked at the average deaths, average number of deaths in five years prior to the pandemic of 2021. So I'm sorry, in the, in the year 2020. So five years prior to 2020, they averaged out the number of deaths in each country of these 11 wealthy peer nations. And I'll name them. The, the nations were Sweden, the US, Belgium, Switzerland, the UK, the Netherlands, Austria, France, Canada, Germany, and Australia. And when they compared the average number of deaths in each country prior to the pandemic to the year 2020, what they found was absolutely stunning. But before I get there, I'm gonna mention that how that was measured. So if you had say 1 million deaths um, in a country on average in the year prior to 2020, and then you had 1.3 million deaths in 2020, um, you'd say there was an excess mortality of 30%. And the reason the year 2020 is so important is because that was the year before vaccines and antivirals. So the only real tools that people had at their hands to deal with this pandemic were public health interventions. And this is where it gets really interesting. Because to understand the net effect, not only of COVID deaths, because excess mortality includes COVID deaths as well as deaths from downstream effects. And let's think of what those downstream effects are. When you close down businesses and schools in the United States, it knocked 3.3 million more people into poverty. And at the same time, drug abuse deaths, alcoholism, and homicides just soared. In fact, the CDC found that homicide deaths, which were already high in the United States, ratcheted up by 35% during the pandemic. And so did stress levels and heart attacks and strokes. So looking at both COVID deaths and these knock-on effects or downstream effects, um, what we find is that in the United States, the excess mortality was enormous. And when the um, Kaiser researchers Used they, what they did is they looked at the human mortality database. This is a database that's maintained by the U.S. Uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Max Planck Institute in Germany. And that's when they found this. Sweden is the only nation 
that had no excess mortality for people under the age of 75. And even for people 75 and older, Sweden outperformed seven of the other wealthy peer nations that I just mentioned. So um, the question is too, you know, you might wonder, well, how could it be that there was no excess mortality among people under 75 in Sweden if in fact there were COVID deaths? And in truth, there were some COVID deaths among younger people in Sweden, but in part, they were able to do that because um, number one, there are fewer deaths among younger people, and in part because some Swedes did self-isolate. This was a voluntary program where people who were at risk would isolate, and they may be less likely, therefore, to have been infected with COVID or to have died of other causes from going out, like automobile accidents. But in large part, they were able to avoid the excess mortality among younger people because they didn't shift the burden of mortality from older people to younger people by shutting down schools and businesses, like we did in the United States, which is why we saw this dramatic rise in desperations and, and what we call deaths of despair. And that's what happened in the United States. And I think what happened in Sweden is something we can learn from. I also want to mention finally before that, you know, there's this false um, narrative that if you're concerned with keeping businesses open, you're only worried about money. Um, we, what's wonderful about this panel is that we have people from a range of political perspectives, from the right to the left, and I'm on the left. And uh, it's, it's a false narrative to say that we're concerned about closing businesses, it's only because we're concerned about money. I'm concerned that closing these businesses costs lives. Thank you, Jean. Uh, Vinay, let me go to you next. Uh, looking back, perhaps with some 2020 hindsight, what do you think Sweden got right and what do you think they got wrong? Thank you for that. Uh, well, they certainly got a few things right. Those things had to do with children. They certainly got a few things wrong. Those probably had to do with the oldest people in the population. But as we think about this issue, I just wanted to toss out a few additional considerations that often get overlooked in this question of what do nations do? You know, what did nations do and what was the impact on COVID-19 policy? One, I think, was something that Gene uh, alluded to, which is the age structure of a population. As we think about and compare nations, it's always important to think about the age structure. We know COVID-19 had such a steep, almost exponential risk of death with advanced age. The second thing I think we forget about, we gloss over, is voluntary behavioral changes. Anytime you hear bad stories in the news about the catastrophic health system collapse in New York City, say in April of 2020, you're going to make voluntary behavioral changes. Um, and those may vary by place by place, depending on where you are, depending on what media coverage you're under. The next factor I think we don't talk enough about is seed load. Every nation in that second week of March 2020 likely had a different seed load based on the rates of international travel. A nation like Australia may have had a fundamentally different number of people on the ground with undiagnosed COVID-19 than a nation like Stock a city like Stockholm, a city like New York City, a city like Rome, a city like London. Those may have been fundamentally different. And seed load has implications, I think, for all of the events that happened in the early part of 2020. The policy is important. What policy did human beings make at the federal, governmental, uh, uh, regional level, and what the implications of those were? I think randomness and stochasticity is often glossed over, but this is a disease that has a heavy right tail distribution of spread. In other words, a few events result in a lot of spread. 
And that creates a large degree of randomness. Even if you were to recreate the 2020 playbook and play it back a thousand times, they're likely to vary substantively uh, in terms of the fate of nations. And I think that should be something we, in, we consider as well. Um, schools, I think, is very likely to be Sweden's uh, greatest success story. Schools were uh, famously kept open in Sweden for primary school uh, throughout the pandemic, a very tough and controversial decision at the time. Uh, other schools did close, as Jean mentions, but very briefly. And Sweden, of course, is at one end of the spectrum. A number of other European nations were quick to reopen. The United States, particularly liberal left of center cities, uh, to their detriment, uh, did not open for prolonged periods of time up to 18 months in some, in some regions, which will have uh, lasting implications, I think, uh, for de decades to come. I think it's important to remember that the policy response most nations took part in in 2020 was contrary to nearly all established pre-pandemic guidance, which uh, did not call for the use of broad sweeping lockdown measures and was historically considered unthinkable. One factor I think we should also include in our discussion of why we might have entered into policy that was hitherto considered unthinkable was we learned from the actions of China, but also we were allowed to engage in this policy because of the advance of technology. Upper middle class workers could participate in their lives through Zoom. They weren't laid off en masse. I think had it not been for Zoom and Amazon Prime and Uber Eats, uh, it's very likely nations would have had fundamentally different responses. And some of these responses may have been thought unthinkable. I think cross-country comparisons will always be fraught, and we're going to hear many. When I look at the indices of Sweden, such as uh, COVID-19 deaths per 100,000 or excess deaths, you know, it's hard to say anything other than they're roughly doing similar to other nations. They're not doing disproportionately worse for a nation that took part in different policy, but these cross-country comparisons are fraught for many reasons. One, they're not measuring things the same. Uh, they may not be counting the same death as a COVID-19 death in different nations. Two, excess mortality, we act as if it's you know, given by God, it's not. Excess mortality is observed deaths minus expected deaths. But what is an expected death? Well, you have to average the deaths in the years preceding and then make an extrapolation about what those deaths would have been, acknowledging that the population is a little bit older in the future. It's not a perfect uh, value. It's a value that can be debated. And so even excess mortality, I think, is a uh, somewhat flawed and imperfect measure. And the truth about any model, as an economist, I think, might tell you, is that you can't just explain to me nation against nation. Give me a model that explains the fate of many, many nations, a model that explains the fate of Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, Denmark, United States. And that model, I think, will be one of the great uh, intellectual challenges of the 21st century to develop such a model. Um, finally, I just want to state that the ultimate verdict is not in. I think at this point in the pandemic, we have an, clearly an endemic virus. It's very likely that COVID-19 will ultimately infect 93 to 97% of all people on earth. And then it's very likely to reinfect them every few years episodically uh, for as long as human beings exist. And so the final verdict on Sweden is not yet in. We're not at the finish line. We're going to keep seeing the impacts of these road and we will have to see how Sweden fared in terms of uh, the good things they did, which is I think empowered children to continue their education and all of the good things that come from that uh, versus uh, some of the early setbacks they may have faced, particularly around their care for elderly people. Um, so those are just some preliminary thoughts. I think it's uh, an incredibly challenging question. Uh, I think it's also clear that Sweden was unfairly deemed. Um, and I think that as time has gone on, it is clear uh, that they appear to be vindicated in a number of their choices. Although I think they also uh, have made some. Uh, 
Jay, uh, Sweden's pandemic policy aligned with the approach advocated, generally aligned with the approach advocated by you with uh, and the other authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on this and also maybe your thoughts about what uh, Jean and Vinay have already said. Uh, so I'll, I'll do the easy part first. Gene and Vinay did a fantastic job, I think, outlining, uh, and I'm in broad agreement uh, with, uh, with, the, with the strengths and weaknesses of the Swedish policy. Uh, and, and let me just emphasize uh, that I completely agree with two, two particular things that they said uh, that, that are worth emphasizing. Uh, one is that, that th these kinds of outcomes are complicated to assess and need to be assessed in the long run. Uh, rather than uh, than a pile on in the midst of a very early in a pandemic uh, where you where people just assume they know what the long run effects are going to be without actually knowing you know with no empirical basis for that. And the second thing I want to emphasize is something that Gene said, which is really quite important, which is that um, this cuts across traditional political lines. The the, the the Swedish government that implemented this was a, was a left wing government. Uh, in fact, the only uh, protest in the early days of the pandemic against the Swedish policy was by right wing government, right wing uh, parties within Sweden. Um, it in fact is the mirror image of what happened in the United States, where left wing governments tended to be very much more in favor of uh, of harsh lockdowns and uh, other other policies, where and uh, whereas like right wing governments were much less so. Uh, so this is this is one of these things where. As a social scientist, I look at this like, okay, we're gonna, we are going to be learning lessons from this for a very long time to come. Uh, it, uh, Sweden, in particular, I think, provides a uh, is, is is fantastic in terms of those lessons because it provides such a contrast to so much of the rest of the world in what uh, in what it did. And uh, and as Ben I said, and I agree with, uh, as far as the infection controls outcomes look, they look you know pretty much like their neighbors look, not 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 too far different. In fact, I was just looking at the at the Finnish. Uh, outcomes for overall excess deaths per capita. And now they actually, through 2022, August, have higher overall excess deaths per, per capita than Sweden does. Uh, Sweden has slightly higher than Nor Norway does and slightly higher than, than Denmark does. But, uh, you know, Finland has worse and th their, their policies were a little more, a little more uh, uh, aggressive than Sweden's, although much less aggressive than many blue states. So I think, uh, I think the, 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 all, all, those, all those comments I absolutely agree with. And then let me turn to your question, Jeff, about what, uh, uh, wh how closely did Sweden align with the policy recommendations that I've, I've been associated with, this Great Barrington Declaration? Uh, just to remind the audience, the Great Barrington Declaration, the idea is that uh, is, is, is based on very, very simple facts. Well, uh, one is that there's an enormous age gradient in mortality risk from COVID risk, so that older people have a much higher risk of dying than uh, younger people do, um, whereas uh, 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 the uh, almost a thousand fold, much much steeper gradient than uh, than than the flu, for instance. Uh, the second fact on which the Great Barrington Declaration is built is, is is I think indisputable, which is that the lockdowns themselves and the and the and the restrictive policies have enormous negative consequences directly on the health and and psychological well being of populations wherever they're applied. Uh, they create deep anxiety. Uh, they they create displacement. They 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 have direct harm on people. Make cause people to skip. Uh, routine and necessary uh, screenings of cancers, for instance, uh, uh, they, they, they close closing schools have long run negative effects on the health and, and long longevity of children. All, all these are like pretty well known and pretty well established and not not particularly controversial. You put those two facts together, the right policy then is to protect the vulnerable from from COVID as best you can, 
um, while minimizing the disruption to the rest of the population because the disruptions themselves cause more health harms and more uh, more problems for people than the protection against COVID would, would, would gain. Um, so that's the Great Barrington Declaration in a nutshell. Uh, how well did Sweden do? Uh, in one sense, I think Sweden did quite poorly at the beginning, right? The, the biggest, uh, I think, failure for Sweden was the, the spread of COVID in the Stockholm nursing homes early in the pandemic. This was a, a just a disaster. And as I think a lot of the, the Swedish commentators and, and review panels have looked at this have agreed that it was a disaster. Uh, the Swedish public health authority, in particular, the, 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 uh, the, the authorities in Stockholm um, that ran these nursing homes did not appreciate sufficiently how important it was to keep COVID infection out of nursing homes. Now, I should say, uh, I'm criticizing Sweden on this, but this is something that basically many countries shared as problems, like so the United States, uh, in New York, uh, Andrew Cuomo sent COVID infection patients back to nursing homes, uh, uh, killing I don't know how many people. In 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 Canada, in Quebec, uh, there there are stories of nursing home workers abandoning their posts because they're so scared of COVID, leaving uh, patients in nursing homes with dementia to die of starvation and thirst. Um, we have uh, so we have sort of a sh a, from the early days of the pandemic around the world, negative stories about nursing homes. And that's, and that uh, Sweden actually shares, I think, uh, so, some uh, some of the problems. Um, on the other hand, uh, on, uh, over time, I think Sweden learned much better about how to manage focus protection, right? They started protecting nursing homes better um, than, than they, they had previously done. They left schools open, which is absolutely critically important, especially for, for, for young kids. They did not disrupt the lives of children. And, I, and there's now reports coming in that unlike nearly every other country that did disrupt education for their kids, there's been almost no learning loss for kids in Sweden, No, almost no change in the inequality of outcomes across socioeconomic uh, class and, and, uh, and income. Uh, unlike, for instance, the United States, where there's a tremendous difference in the, uh, the, 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 the harm that children have faced with poor kids and minority kids facing a much worse outcome. Uh, it was a much more equitable response simply because they, decided to follow this this principle of focus protection, follow the data. Um, uh, on uh, When the vaccines came, Sweden did an absolutely exceptional job of prioritizing older people first. And that is in line with the principle of focus protection. If you know that older people have a much higher risk of dying from getting sick uh, and the vaccines protect against you from dying and getting sick, the biggest benefit is going to come by vaccinating older people. He did that. In fact, there was there was even a case of a of a, a young forty-ish uh, uh, Swedish authority uh, a person in the government who skipped the line. And he actually lost his job because he skipped the line to to uh, to, to get the vaccine too early. Um, I mean, I think uh, this is this is fantastic, and and you can see what the the benefit of it because when the third wave hit in the spring of twenty twenty one, there was an enormous wave of cases in Sweden, but many many fewer deaths than you would have expected. If you'd had a less vaccinated population, so I think that that that's the principle of focus protection in action. What it does is it decouples the cases from the deaths and the negative consequences of the the the, the, the disease. Um, that I think, frankly, is as best as you can do given the technologies we have. Um, uh, a few other things I think Sweden did right. Uh, that it it maintained the public trust that people have in public health. It, in fact, if you uh, Sweden is one of the few countries on earth where People, if you ask them, did, did this public health do a good job during the, the during the, uh, the, the the pandemic? They'll say yes, they did. Uh, contrast with the United States, where 
a very large number of people in the United States have absolutely lost trust with public health. Um, it adopted policies that were long-term sustainable, didn't ask the population to stay home and stay safe when only maybe 20% or 30% of the population have the capacity to do so. Not everybody can work from home and keep their jobs. Um, it provided resources for people uh, who were sick to stay home. Right? It actually gave sick leave for, 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 for people who, uh, who, uh, who were sick so that they didn't have to make a choice between their, 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 you know, feeding their family or, 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 or going to work when sick. Um, it followed its constitutional uh, duties. Like, so the constitution did not permit lockdowns. And unlike many other countries where the, the law just basically was upended in, in favor of state of emergency, it actually followed the, the Swedish constitution, protected the rights of citizens, um, as I said, with good, with good outcomes. Um, and uh, it never told a noble lie to the population as far as I know. Uh, it did not use its authority in order to manipulate the population to doing what it wanted, what the public health authorities wanted them to do. It just squared with the population and said, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. We're asking you to do this because it, it, it may protect your, uh, our older people. We're asking you to do this because uh, at this time there's, there's more spread. Please stay home if you're sick. All of that uh, people listened to because they trusted because they weren't lied to. Um, and uh, finally, I think uh, they, they exuded a sense of not panicking, right? This is one of the major principles of public health that I think has been violated in the United States and in many other countries. Um, a, a population that panics will often undertake actions that have absolutely no benefit as far as disease control, but a tremendous harm, right? So for instance, uh, a lot of the anti- uh, uh, un, uh, so the discriminatory policies and discrimination that unvaccinated individuals in the United States have faced have resulted both from noble lies told about how risky unvaccinated people are to other people, and also from um, the sense that uh, that that it, it's okay to denigrate them. I mean, we stigmatized on the on the advice of public health. In effect, we stigmatized unvaccinated people, many of whom the the majority of the, who who were uh, low income, many of whom minorities. We we adopted policies that prevented them from from, uh, from engaging in civic life. Uh, Sweden didn't do any of that, and as a result, maintained the trust of the entire population. So, so on net, I think uh, Jeff, I think the answer is yes. They they uh, not they did they did quite a good job with focus protection. Not a perfect job, very far from a perfect job. I don't think a perfect job was possible, um, uh, uh, but the results are are quite clear in in terms of not just the the numbers of uh, in terms of like the the, the uh, overall excess deaths, just as Gene said, but also in terms of the trust that public health uh, and pu the public has in public health. And I think for the Swedish population, that'll pay enormous dividends going forward. Thanks, Jay. So why don't we ask somebody from Sweden? Joanne, you're a scholar in the history of ideas. You're also Swedish. You live in Sweden and you experienced uh, your country's pandemic policy firsthand. Uh, I think someone with your background uh, in the social sciences can help us put this into proper perspective. So. Let, let's hear what your experience and your perspective is. Thank you very much. It's been very interesting to hear about these uh, views on Sweden from the outside and the comparative perspective. So let me tell you what it looked like from here in Stockholm uh, at that time. You know, one Thursday afternoon in early March 2020, a few minutes before 3 p.m., I got a call from a nurse who asked me, did you sit in seat 12A on the flight from Munich on February 29th? And uh, I checked my boarding card in my cell phone and answered in the affirmative. Okay, she replied. You probably know why I'm asking. And 
I did. Uh, apparently, I had been sitting next to the novel coronavirus and was told to self-quarantine for two weeks. And this was the moment I realized that Sweden would quickly be submerged by the pandemic because Stockholm had just had its sports break, which is a week-long spring break from school, when many Swedish families go to the Alps uh, for skiing. And since in Stockholm, this was in the last week of February, it was right when Northern Italy experienced booming infections. And in the Austrian Alps, we saw the same infections appearing at this time. Um, it's what scientists call an amplifying event. And that's important because we didn't have the same kind of spring break at that time in Copenhagen in Denmark or in Oslo in Norway or in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, it happened in Stockholm at that time that we were exposed to the infections from Italy. The barbarians had already broken through the gates and apparently I was one of the barbarians. That's what I learned from that phone call. And the next few months obviously would be a very frightening and confusing time of isolation, disease, death, loss of loved ones and a terrible strain on the healthcare system. But as you all know, in comparison to what was going on in the rest of the world, there was also a sense of normalcy in Sweden. As, if possible uh, to talk about normalcy. There were no stay-at-home rules, no shelter-in-place orders. We were not confronted by police if we tried to get somewhere or asked about our papers or our business going there. There were no mask mandates and we did not shut down schools, restaurants, offices, libraries, shopping centers, gyms, and so on. There were a couple of restrictions, most importantly public events public gatherings were limited to 50 people. But apart from that, it was mostly voluntary recommendations. Swedes were asked to work from home if they could, limit travel if possible, reduce interactions and meetings as much as possible. So life was not normal. The streets were quiet. When I took the subway or had to go shopping or went to a restaurant, I was quite alone. We didn't have the same kind of crowds that we usually do, which means that people adapted to the situation voluntarily because they wanted to keep themselves and their loved ones safe. But this difference, the fact that this was based on recommendations and not legislation, meant that if you really had to go to work, if you really had to meet someone, you could do it. No one would stop you. And most importantly, and I think there seems to be a consensus on this on the panel, our kids were not thrown out of school. They did not lose a year, not even a month of education. And I think we'll see the consequences of that ahead. The Social Democratic Prime Minister, Stefan Levin, summarized the policy in this way, quote, we will never be able to legislate about everything. We will never be able to ban all harmful behavior. Now, it's actually a matter of common sense and individual responsibility. And in March 2020, such words were radical, and to many, they seemed dangerous. The rest of the world looked at us and talked about the Swedish experiment. But that's not what it looked like to Swedes. To Swedes, it looked like the rest of the world was engaged in an experiment. To lock down societies according to an almost Chinese model, 
in a way and at a scale that had never been attempted before. Sweden just did what the Swedish authorities had already planned for and war-gamed for in advance, and actually what most other health agencies had planned for in case of a pandemic. But all the other agencies and governments, they threw out the manual the moment they panicked, the moment they became frightened by the virus or by the voters. Sweden became an exception because Sweden did not throw out the manual. And I think this was partly because of the a very unique division of power in Sweden's system of government. Sweden's government agencies are independent, uh, unlike most other government agencies. The government appoints the general secretary, but is actually not allowed to tell them what to do. Agencies are not supposed to act according to the political will of the moment, but according to the law and the facts. They're supposed to trust the science, if you will, and come up with recommendations. And then governments can always overrule them and legislate and lock down if they want to. But by tradition, it means that they often defer to the expert agencies. You might say that they sometimes hide behind them. So even if voters or journalists demand tough action, the government can say that the public health agency has said that nothing has really changed. This is still the best course of action. And to me, it's incredibly interesting that the public health agencies in neighboring countries like Denmark and Norway, they also opposed closing schools and closing borders, just like the Swedish one did. But in those countries, those agencies are not as independent. And the decisions are primarily political decisions, and politicians had to show strength. Plus, obviously, modeling and nightmare scenarios scared all these politicians. We all know about the infamous Imperial College uh, modeling about how many people will die, would die in, in Britain. A Swedish team inspired by the Imperial College model said that by July 1st in 2020, Sweden would have 82,000 COVID-19 deaths with this model. It was not easy to stand firm with scenarios like that. But the um, government still kept on saying that the health agency says that this is the right course of action. So let's stick, let's not throw out the, um, the, um, the book. I guess that it's easier when you have someone to blame if things go wrong. And I guess it's also might, this might be one of the benefits of a modest political style, not having strong men pretending that they have the answers to all our questions. And interestingly, Swedes generally welcomed this policy. There were obviously opposing voices and heated debate, but public trust in both the government and in the Social Democratic Party and in the public health agency increased rapidly during the pandemic. And in another sign that Sweden is different, as, as Jay pointed out, all major political parties in Sweden were in general agreement, except for the populist right. The populist right in Sweden wanted to shut down the schools and fire the lead state epidemiologist Anders Tegnell, who, who led this response. But apart from um, the far right, um, most political forces were in agreement. And how did it turn out? Well, we've heard about this and the comparisons and uh, others will have more to say about that, I'm, I'm sure, during the questions and answers. But we definitely know that it worked better than anyone expected. 
there were mistakes. There were some stupid decisions. And uh, I agree with the assessment that many deaths among the oldest could have been avoided because we waited too long to stop visits to nursing homes. But at the same time, I got that call about the trip in late February. The barbarians, that is us, we were here in Stockholm spreading the virus before we even thought of coming up with a response to this. And we do know that despite of this, the models were completely inaccurate. By July 1st, Sweden had not suffered 82,000 deaths, but a bit more than 5,000 deaths. And in fact, Sweden did better than almost all other European and North American countries. And one reason why the models failed is that they, just like most politicians, underestimated how people spontaneously adapt to new circumstances and new information if you have a clear message. They, the, the modelers, the, uh, the politicians, usually thought about it in terms of lockdowns versus business as usual as the only two alternatives, but failed to consider a third option, that people actually engage in social distancing voluntarily when they realize that lives are at stake. And this also meant that we kept most of our freedoms, something that you can't count, something you can't put in a chart. It's just a year or two, they said, and then we can get back to normal. Well, what if you don't have a year or two? What about the young who have lost a year of education and who will never get their formative years of self-discovery and social adaptation back? As witnessed by the sharp increase in loneliness, anxiety, drug abuse in many countries, there is more to life than surviving it. So my preliminary assessment is that I agree with the independent Swedish Corona Commission when they said and concluded in their review by saying that limiting measures essentially to recommendations which the population are expected to follow voluntarily is fundamentally a correct approach. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jean. I think you had a question you wanted to ask, Joanne. Yeah, um, do I understand correctly that the, when you talk about throwing out the playbook that other countries threw it out while Sweden stuck to it, do I understand correctly that the World Health Organization had also taken a stand prior to the pandemic that there should not be lockdowns during the pandemic? This is at least what we heard about the World Health Organization uh, early on during the pandemic, that this is, that, that's what Swedish, the Swedish uh, Public Health Agency said, and they do have their um, people in WHO as well, saying that this is how we war-gamed it. This is how a pandemic would play out. Nobody talked about shutting down entire societies. Nobody talked about shutting down schools in this way. Uh, and I'm not an expert and on WHO matters. I don't know what really happened there, but that was the general assessment and that at least the Swedish experts were shocked when they heard that this was big, turning into policy in many places. And we do, we, we've seen studies by, um, there's a Swedish team of researchers who looked into countries who um, entered into lockdowns. What was the course what was the timing? They looked at the state of the healthcare system, the spread of the disease, and the number of cases and deaths, and that couldn't explain the timing of lockdowns. Only one thing explained it, and that was, what did the neighbors do? They basically imitated the policy of other countries. And I think there is, 
if you're a politician and there is this general uh, exception expectation that you you'll deal with the situation at least you don't want to go it alone that's scary we all make mistakes but you don't want to be the odd man out uh, doing something risky that others don't agree with and then you make a mistake it's much safer if you do the same thing that everybody else did and i think that explains it more than anything that we uh or gamed and looked at in advance um Could I just before, before go to... oh yeah sure sure i'm sorry yeah go ahead i mean just on that point um you may remember that in the early 2000s, George W. Bush, I think, has done some commissioned work on what the implications of pandemic would be and what the reaction would be. And there is a paper by D.A. Henderson, the late great D.A. Henderson, responsible for smallpox eradication, and others uh, that talked about pandemic strategies. Uh, this was even hypothesizing an influenza-like epidemic, an epidemic that disproportionately took a toll on the young. And in that uh, guidance document, uh, they cautioned uh, against lockdowns, they cautioned against school closure. Um, so I do think uh, that the preponderance of pre-pandemic guidance uh, would have suggested against those measures. Um, and I think that uh, uh, to the excellent point that the things that allow a politician to entertain those measures is observing that other people are doing it. Other people are doing it. It will be risky not to do it. We're learning from China and we were coupled with an Imperial College London model that put the fear of God into a lot of politicians. Um, unless anybody else has anything they want to say, I want to uh, I want to ask a question. Moderator's privilege, and then I'm going to start taking questions that are coming in. Um, I'd like to I'm going to direct this to Vinay, but anyone else on the panel who would like to chime in, please feel free. I'd like to know, and I would your reaction to the article by Bruce Allaire's et al. in Nature that came out in March that was basically calling uh, Sweden's uh, policy a, a failure, an abject failure. I guess I would say that uh, I would be extremely reluctant to, I mean, I disagree with that characterization. I mean, I think that I agree with uh, most of the points made on this panel. I mean, I think Jay is right that if they could turn back time and do it all over again, I think they would have put special emphasis on nursing homes. And I think that was the error uh, that uh, they made early on. I think the point that was made was that the barbarians were already uh, had stormed the gates. I think that's an important point that referred to what I was talking about, seed load. I mean, I think we forget that this seed load concept, how many cases on the ground per 100,000 citizens is uh, unknown. And it is possible that if you're an island nation in the middle of the Pacific and you didn't have a hide seed load and you instituted a draconian lockdown, you could take a very contagious respiratory virus and for a short time extinguish it. Uh, but if you're a nation that uh, has uh, cities that are connected to numerous other global cities, cosmopolitan, in the setting of uh, a soccer match, you know, those famous soccer celebrations uh, uh, in Bergamo and uh, outside Milan. Uh, if you are uh, coming off of holiday as they were doing in Stockholm, uh, you know, it made it made it more vulnerable. It made you much more vulnerable, much higher caseload on the ground. Um, I think the other point that uh, Jay made that was a superb point, which is that the impact of school closure, you're not going to see that this year, next year, uh, you'll see some of it, we've already seen some of it, uh, but you won't see the full impact for 20, 30, 40 years. And the impact will, might be so devastating uh, that that decision in and of itself could overwhelm every other policy choice made. Uh, and I suspect that it's very likely to be the case. The impact of one year lost education on American youth uh, is likely to be catastrophic with spillover effects, I think, on their health, 
uh, their life expectancy, and even the stability of democratic processes when you have a generation that was cheated out of an education uh, could have implications for political processes. So I think, you know, it's far too early to to be uh, crowning uh, uh, anyone the victor or anyone, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, the sinner. Jay, did you want to comment on that? I know you're very uh, interested in that paper that came out in Nature. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, just to be fair to the authors, I think they do make some good points about uh, about how about the failure of the Swedish public health uh, to protect older people, they, especially in, early in the pandemic. I think that is an absolutely fair point that the authors make. Uh, I will say that there's some element of of uh, 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 when I was reading that paper, the sense of of uh, absurdity to it. So uh, they, they, the paper complains that um, that the critics of the Swedish public health authority didn't have a voice reflected in the public health authority. And um, to, to me, it's funny because like that's exactly my criticism of American public health policy, that, that the public health uh, essentially systematically excluded any voices that disagreed with the lockdown policy that we followed. Uh, so it's funny to read uh, Swedish scholars who didn't agree with the Swedish policy complaining in the same direction. So in that sense, I also am sympathetic to them. I mean, I think it, it is better for public health to include all voices when there is a dis disagreement in in that dis in in the discussion over policy, um, rather than systematically excluding or or, or ridiculing people who, uh, who who disagree. So I think in, in those two senses, I I was sympathetic to the authors of the paper. Uh, but broadly, though, I I don't agree with them. I think they're short-sighted in uh, thinking about the effects of. Uh, these policy, the effectiveness of these policies. I don't think these policies actually had a, an effect on long-run infection control. Uh, and then I'm also very strongly disagree with them about the uh, uh, the harms of these policies. The harms of these policies, uh, these lockdowns, these business closures, these school closures, just as, as this entire panel has said, are, are tremendous. And I think the, the paper underplays those. Say something and follow up, Jean. Yeah, um, I, since then I mentioned uh, um, D.A. Henderson, I had the good fortune as a journalist to interview him before he died. And I just want to mention that what he said uh, about uh, not locking down is not just some theoretical idea because he's a smart guy. It was rooted in his experience with smallpox because I remember asking him about mandatory lockdowns. And as someone who believes in the common good and that people should do what's best for the common good, I just thought, oh, you know, a mandatory lockdown, that makes sense, you protect other people. And he's the person who convinced me that that was wrong. And it was from his experience in eradicating smallpox um, that he came to that conclusion. And he said it just has you know, terrible effects and that people just lie, they move around, you don't know what's happened. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't respect people's ability to protect themselves and protect others. Um, and it puts people in a terrible position. I think it was Phil Hunter who said, you know, that, that by doing this in a voluntary way, the people who absolutely need to go out and do things are able to do it. And so I think D.A. Henderson was an important voice to hear. Um, I'd like to start taking uh, some questions from viewers. I have one question, and this is uh, directed at Jay, but anyone else who wants to take it can take it um, afterwards. This is from uh, Dr. Ross Levatter, who is a physician in Phoenix. Uh, because I'm from Phoenix, I happen to know him. He says, Dr. Bhattacharya, as both an epidemiologist and an economist, you're certainly familiar with large-scale modeling. 
what do the best developed models tell us regarding possible American lives saved that had the U.S. had the U.S. followed the Swedish approach to combating COVID-19? For example, there were 170,000 excess deaths in the U.S. from non-COVID causes and no excess deaths from non-COVID causes in Sweden. How many of those non-excess non-COVID excess deaths might have been avoided with a different pandemic policy? I don't think we have a good answer uh, in the scholarly literature to that question. I think I think generally the the modeling uh, that I've seen through much of the pandemic has been incredibly naive about the structure of societies, in particular about how uh, the poor and the vulnerable how they interact with 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 society and how and the effect of these restrictions. Um, so, like the Imperial College model is, was for, is a good example of this. They 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 uh, make strong assumptions about the ability of people to comply with draconian lockdown orders and assume essentially that uh, that they're going to be effective when in fact we, we see they aren't um i'm most convinced to date by uh by uh, uh i know Vinay didn't like these so much but like comparisons across countries if, as long as you could you know you have to do if you can you can try to be careful about this and the most careful comparisons across countries tend to find that lockdowns didn't save very many lives from COVID. uh the, 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 the over the over at least over the short run um and and, and probably over the the the, the two-year period uh, since the since they were first instituted uh they didn't save marine lives you compare countries that were more uh more more strict versus countries that are less strict in a systematic way trying your best to, to uh, look at subnational regions that are similar to each other and so on and you tend to find uh, it's much much more difficult to find an empirical effect of lockdowns than you than you would think. In fact, you find it's, I mean the, there was a meta analysis done by a group at Johns Hopkins that found basically almost no benefit of lockdowns in terms of lives saved. Uh, uh, so uh, on the other side of it, uh, we also don't know yet. In part because we, we, we it, the, the, the the full long tail of lockdown harms haven't come to pass. What consequences are going to that these lockdowns are going to have ultimately in terms of the health and well-being of populations. Uh, we do know it's negative. Uh, we do know that it's likely to be very large and negative. Um, but the full extent of it is still yet to play. And actually, I, I want to uh, emphasize something on this. It's not. I mean, I, I think actually the right policy now is is to work very hard to try to figure out how to mitigate those harms. We don't want them to come about. I would much rather, uh, you know, let's let's start. I think in the UK they're starting to think about this. How do you uh, get get to the backlog of all these folks who didn't have cancer screening during lockdown? Uh, how do you deal with in the United States uh, the, this tsunami of people uh, who are now uh, on, you know, on, on fentanyl and other drug overdoses? The, the enormous uh, backlog of people who who, are, who basically have been depressed and, and anxious through the pandemic, that, and, that, and that's that's showing up, especially children. How do you deal with the learning loss, the, the catastrophic learning loss, especially in poor populations uh, who couldn't afford to go to private school in the United States? Uh, I mean, I think we have to move the conversation from like just counting those deaths and those harms, because although that needs to happen, toward how do we mitigate them so that, that the long tail doesn't come, it won't be quite as so bad as it as as, as it looks like now it's going to be. Did uh, Vinay, did you want to say something about that? Or... I guess maybe the only thing I would add is um, one of the consequences of lockdown in March of 2020 was that uh, not all places in the United States were able to sustain it equally as long. And uh, some states with uh, different ideas about liberty and personal freedom, uh, when the moment the lockdown was over, they had uh, 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 the opposite voluntary reaction. Uh, you know, we heard about voluntary behavioral changes, but we had an opposite reaction. We had a huge outbreak in the Dakotas, North and South Dakota, prior to the vaccine. 
And so one wonders how the United States would have fared with a response that is something that we could have lived with, something that was less draconian um, and more bearable, something that was more measured. Uh, and I think that uh, one of the wisdom of Sweden's response was understanding that you don't know when you'll get a vaccine and pandemics are not a two week business. It's a long haul and it could have had many epidemic waves. Uh, we were lucky to get it in November, early November of 2020, but that wasn't guaranteed. It could have been another year and had it been another year, what would have happened? And so I think those are important considerations. Okay, I have a, a question came in from anonymous. I think it's, but this is interesting because I think it's something that we should discuss because it, uh, while it, I'm, the tone of it suggests it, it was meant as a criticism, it's actually an important question. The question is how many immunocompromised patients landing in the hospital with COVID is an adequate price to pay for the economy? And I, 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 I don't know what, I assume that the questioner means for, for economic well-being. Uh, but I think that's, uh, th and I also presume the answer that the anonymous questioner asks, he's probably looking for the answer of zero. But I'd like to hear what uh, your thoughts are on this. So let me start with the economist in the group, Jay, and then we'll move on to whoever else wants to, to chime in. Yeah, that, that is an excellent question, actually. But the problem is the false premise underlying it. Um, the idea is that money is is uh, more, uh, is le less important than lives, which I don't disagree with. I don't think anyone, uh, you know, any reasonable person disagrees with. The issue is, uh, what does that money actually represent? What is what 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 the what are the actual trade offs here, right? So if you make a generation of kids poorer, you're going they're going to lead shorter, less healthy uh, lives. They're going to they're going to be it's going to cost lives uh, if you restrict people from going to the to, to get uh, cancer screening it's going to cost lives if you uh, prioritize one disease over other diseases people with those other diseases are going to die uh, so what we're talking about really is a trade-off between lives and lives not really a trade-off between lives and money um, so I think the premise of the question is wrong the other part of the premise of the question is wrong is um, how do you protect immunocompromised people from staying out of the hospital uh, how do you do it with the vaccine? Once the vaccine comes available, well, you prioritize them for vac vaccination, which we've done. I mean, that's basically the best protection we have. Um, uh, how do you protect them before the vaccine comes? Well, that's a difficult question even before COVID. Immunocompromised people face all kinds of challenges in their lives. Um, I, I, during COVID, actually, it might actually be easier because other people are being more protective of, of other people, even voluntarily when there's a, a disease afoot. It may make the lives of immunocompromised people safer simply because there's less random interactions with other people because of, because of that voluntary uh, interactions. So I don't, I don't think um, uh, the, 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 the pre the, the, there's like sort of two premises of the question, both a value premise and a fact premise that, that I think are incorrect in, at the heart of that question. Uh, my goal has always been to to to, uh, to to protect life. I mean, that's why I, I went into medical school to begin with. I mean, the, why would why else would I do that? Um, and I think uh, the economics of it are not an irrelevant thing, an aside that you can throw away and say, okay, well, that doesn't that has no effect on life. I only the main reason I care about economics is because it is fundamentally important to people living long, healthy lives. Joan, do you have anything you'd like to say about that? I think that the, the question has already been answered in an excellent way. I'd just uh, add 
two things. First of all, since if you're immunocompromised, you always face those risks under normal circumstances, even we, when we don't face COVID. One of the problems, and I agree, this is a very, it's an excellent question and very important to think about. The problem with some of the, um, the policies that have been implemented during COVID could be used in the same way to legitimize lockdown forever. If we have zero visions about um, cases and deaths in a certain area, it means that we might have to lock down societies forever to avoid that. And one of the problems doing that is that we, whenever we focus on one instance, one problem, one goal, one vision, one a zero vision anywhere, is that we lose all the other objectives, all the other goals that we have, and um, which results in disease, deaths, problems in, in other areas. Uh, we've talked about learning loss, but we, we should talk about the general state of the healthcare system. We should talk about uh, normal childhood vaccinations that have been uh, shut down or seriously compromised in lots of places that uh, lo locked down, uh, which is not the case in Sweden. We actually had almost exactly the same rate of childhood vaccinations during the pandemic as we had in the years previous. Actually, I think a half a percentage point, a tenth of a percentage point higher, in fact, in, in Sweden during the pandemic um, period. So it's not lives versus the economy, as has already been said, it's lives versus lives. And then we have to take the broad picture and we have to avoid any kind of zero something. Uh, okay, uh, I'm, I have a question here from Anonymous. Joan mentioned trust and authority in Sweden. The USA is known to have low public trust in many pu political institutions. Science, however, remains among the most trusted US institutions. Is trust the key variable here? If so, trust is unlikely to change quickly, limiting policy choices. So uh, uh, I think I should probably uh, start with Joan since the question was directed at him and then anybody else who wants to jump in, please do. This is an excellent question and it has often been suggested that one of the reasons why recommendations worked in Sweden is that we already have that trust in in the government and in uh, our fellow human beings, so uh, in our neighbors. So when we hear that we should work from home if we can, avoid public transportation if possible, okay, then we follow these recommendations. It might not work in the same way where you have less trust in governments, uh, where you have less trust in, uh, in medical experts and, and public health agencies. That might be the case. I think that's uh, something, and, and it is definitely the case that in Sweden and Scandinavian countries, we have a high degree of social trust. Whether it would work in other places, I think that's... Uh, up to others than, than Scandinavians to, to think about, perhaps others in this panel. But I would add that this very problem, the fact that you have less public trust in the US, in governments and health agencies and so on, also means that um, you cause problems with rules, legislation, uh, lockdowns. You um, 
instantly create the problem that people might try to avoid following these rules. If they are treated in a way that they find unacceptable, they might begin to uh, revolt completely rather than trying to protect themselves and their, their fellow uh, men and women. Um, and that's something that we've seen in other areas as well, how even if it's not legislation, it could be about vaccines, it could be about general recommendations in the US. Suddenly everything is politicized and it's almost like you, you don't care about what, what anyone in the profession says because it's suddenly a political statement, uh, which side you belong to. And that's something that happens and affects every policy, whether it's recommendations, legislations or vaccination programs. And it has all, we always have to take it into consideration and it doesn't just affect the, um, how much we follow recommendations or not. <clears throat> Jay, uh, you, you, you yeah, wanted so to comment I, on this. I wanted to comment about, uh, about American, trust in public health. And uh, just some observations uh, that, that, that have, you know, I've looked at during the pandemic as to why. I mean, I think American, uh, Americans generally have less trust in public health and in authority generally. Uh, but I think that the, the, the pandemic has, has it made that problem so much worse. I think if, if, in my career, I've never seen public trust in public health at such a low, low point before. And I think that spans both you know, blue and red states. It's uh, although I think it's worse in red states. Um, uh, the I, I just look at a couple of observations as to why I think this happened. So first, uh, there's this there's this politicization of public health that I think is deeply unfortunate. Public health is not like politics. You can't win fifty percent plus one and then you've won. You in, for public health to work, you really need you know ninety ninety five percent of the po population to just to trust you. So because you know people aren't going to be able to check everything you say. Um, that, that because there's you know complicated questions of, of data or medicine or science, um, the, 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 you're going to need them to trust you about that. Uh, and when they don't, they won't listen to you. They're, they're, even good advice won't get followed. Uh, that's what's happened with in, in, with American public health. There was an incident um, during the George Floyd riots where a, a thousand people in public health signed a letter essentially saying, look, it's not good, it's it's fine to protest for the George Floyd riots when the same people had just, you know, argued that it was an irresponsible protest against lockdowns. Uh, this kind of, there's and there's a sense of like uh, a left-leaning uh, public health authority who, who wanted to put their thumb on the scale in, in politics. That should never have happened. It, it, it essentially undermined their ability to speak to half the American public just automatically. Uh, getting that back is going to be a, a major priority. Uh, a, a second thing I think is the the telling of noble lies by public health from very early in the pandemic really undermined the the confidence that people have. Right. So, for instance, around masks. Right. So the, the very first messaging was masks don't do anything. They don't work. You don't need them. Uh, we should save them for the for the uh, people in, in in hospitals. And then it then uh, that the messaging became oh ha ha we fooled you uh, we actually knew they worked but we needed to save them for the people in the hospitals. Um, I mean once you do that you're going to undermine the ability to t for people to believe you with other things. Um, and I just it's it, it's mind-boggling the professionals in public health decided 
that those kinds of games being played with messaging to the American public would have any good effect whatsoever. If you, even if you win in the short run, you end up losing in the long run, which is exactly what's happened. This is kind of related to this subject. Dr. Joel Zinberg, uh, who's uh, MDJD with the Competitive Enterprise Institute asks, in light of the CDC's recent mea culpa, which US public health authorities would you fault, federal and or state, and what would you recommend for reform? Well, that's kind of a big question. Uh, why don't I start with Vinay? Because Vinay hasn't uh, addressed this issue yet. I guess, uh, where, which part of the pandemic do you want to start with? Um, you know, to the last, the last question was about trust and, you know, uh, we don't have the same trust as Sweden, so we couldn't do what they do. To me, that strikes me as an odd argument in favor of a greater draconian restriction policy. Isn't that an argument for a less draconian restriction because people don't trust you anyway? Um, but I think if we go back to the beginning of the pandemic, the people I think most responsible for the architects of the current response were probably Dr. Bricks and Dr. Fauci, um, who were advising the president at the time uh, and uh, uh, moved into the direction of a very strong 15 days to stop the spread kind of response, um, which I think uh, history will be the ultimate arbiter of, uh, but very likely was uh, inappropriate. Many places had no COVID to spread to stop and other places, you know, the horse was out of the barn. Um, so it was really sort of a one size fits all solution across a very broad, diverse nation. Um, then I think some of the challenges um, were the, I mean, I think the great success of 2020 was the development of the vaccine at an unprecedented timescale. And so um, the engineers at Pfizer and Moderna deserve a great deal of credit for that. Um, in 2021, I mean, I think some of the errors were um, the prioritization issue that Jay was talking about, vaccine prioritization. Uh, the most logical way would have been to really prioritize the elderly, uh, only then thereafter going down the age gradient. The United States, of course, also prioritized essential workers, including some very young, healthy people, young, healthy resident physicians, young, healthy teachers who ultimately took that vaccine and did not immediately go back to teaching in person, um, sort of betraying a social contract there for that vaccine. I think some of the mistakes that were made in the 2021 were uh, an insistence on um, on one-size-fits-all booster policies, even though it meant that Marion Gruber and Phil Krauss resigned from the FDA over it. Um, the use of a vaccine mandate, uh, continued use of a vaccine mandate when it was clear the vaccine could not halt transmission. Uh, if you cannot benefit a third party, the ethical prerequisite for mandate is gone. I think the idea of mandating the vaccine would only undermine trust in a nation like the United States that has always been fiercely individualistic. I'm not sure it uh, helped that many people at all. We were already on an upward trajectory of vaccination and uh, and I think it would have continued in the absence of the mandates. Um, there are a number of lies that I think Jay spoke about. One, uh, the lies and confusion around masking, um, but that was paired with one more error, I think, which is the lack of cluster randomized control trials to sort out non-pharmacologic interventions. Globally, we will finish this pandemic with at most two cluster randomized control trials, both done in low middle income nations prior to vaccination for community cloth masking. Uh, we'll have no cluster randomized trials in high income nations, no trials of distancing policies, of cohorting, of testing strategies, of quarantine policies. None of these were tested with the best tools of science. That to me is a huge error. Um, I didn't view the CDC director's um, 
latest memo as a mea culpa. I didn't view it as uh, the CDC director assuming responsibility for her many errors. I viewed it as uh, a document that tried to push the blame to other people below her in the agency. That's how I read her memo. Um, so I, I think I disagree a little bit with the characterization that it was an apology. I think public health should issue an apology uh, and that would help them to regain some of their credibility. Joan, you wanted to make a point? I'm not the expert on uh, the American pandemic policy here, but just from a Swedish perspective, one thing that really shocked us was the fact that we were testing people, we were testing Swedes, I think six weeks before you did in the US, because we were using the, um, well, a test from um, a university in Berlin recommended by the World Health Organization as well, which was uh, not allowed by CDC in the US. Um, they wanted their own test. They, um, they talked about how, uh, well, it might be that the first test that they had to find out who, who had it and who didn't, uh, it might not have worked, but we don't need anybody else's test. I think that's the exact quote from the deputy, the primary deputy director at CDC. So instead, they wanted to fix that test again. And it took, took weeks and weeks while hospitals and universities and uh, um, companies had tests that they wanted to start using but were not allowed to uh, because the um, the permission um, uh, process was was far too difficult and eventually they got the hang of it the, uh, the cdc did but it took six weeks and those are six important weeks and it's it's shocking to me that uh, uh, they thought that they couldn't use the test that um, the whole of europe and uh, used and uh, the who um, recommended you brought that point up because actually i was going to ask about it if if nobody else brought it up it, it's it, i i i i wanted to know what was the i know in in the eu there's reciprocity when it comes to uh, approval of drugs and i uh, assume it's the same with testing so if a test was developed let's say in uh uh germany uh yeah. then it was okay to use in any of the other EU member countries, even if it was originally went through the approval process in Germany. And was that the same thing with uh, in Sweden as well? Yes, if it's good enough for the Germans, it's, it's good enough for us. And, um, you know, we can't, they do have their processes and we, we do trust them. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's shocking to me, especially when the WHO then looks at it and says that, this they might not have made the the right decisions in in every single instance but when they said that this is the test to use saying that nah we don't need anybody else's test we're going to do it ourselves it's just a waste of of time money and human lives gene wanted to comment about masking i'll i'll take jay next but gene wanted to comment about masking yeah, um, there were actually two randomized controlled trials of masking that I'm aware of. One was, uh, and I, I don't know, Vinay, if you, you said there were none in a well-off country, but I believe the Danish study was published no, no, in no cluster. the annex. No cluster randomized, right, okay. Um, and and so I know that I spoke with the editor at the Annals of Internal Medicine, and, and it took some courage for them to publish the results, which was unexpected, that there really wasn't any significant benefit. 
And then the Bangladesh study came out, which was announced in big headlines in September um, 2021, right as the school year was starting. And the headlines in the Washington Post and everywhere else read, um, masks work just like we knew they did. Um, and that was their conclusion from the Bangladesh study. But I read the 92 pages of that study, and it turns out that it showed absolutely no such thing. What it sh and, and by the way, those headlines were what was used argue that children must be masked in schools. And it turns out that, A, they didn't allow any children in the study. So everyone under 18 was excluded. B, cloth masks showed no benefit whatsoever. And C, the only benefit was an 11% reduction, meaning there was an 89% failure rate, um, even with surgical masks. And that those benefits only accrued people over 65. So I called up the um, lead researcher, or one of the lead researchers on that study, and I said exactly what I've just said here. I, I repeated each of those points, and I said, do I understand these 92 pages correctly? And she said, yes. I mean, I had the email back from her that, um, yeah, this is what's used. And then you hear surgeons say things like, well, I wear a, a mask in surgery. And, um, but that's used for a very different reason. That's used to prevent bacteria from people's mouths and elsewhere from going into open wounds. And bacteria are orders of magnitude bigger than viruses. So the ability of a mask to protect us from viruses is really in question. I mean, if people want to wear them, I have no problem with that. I think that's fine. And, and you know, but I don't think that we should exaggerate what the benefits are and then force little children to be wearing these masks. And clearly they could find and sweeten about them. And Jay, you wanted to comment also. I do, although I, I, was, I wanted to bring back to, uh, to the, the, the testing question. That I completely agree, by the way, with Gene's um, uh, characterization of the Bangladesh study and also of the, the, of the Danish study. We don't have a, a randomized study on masks that, on children at all. And uh, on, on adults, the studies that we have, the randomized studies that we have, indicate ineffectiveness of most masks. Um, and that's, that's from before the pandemic too, dozen randomized studies on the flu, uh, good randomized studies found nothing. Um, it's, it's striking to me that the public health, uh, sort of wrapped, wrapped itself around this idea of masks as the, as the way, way to get through the pandemic when there was such a weak evidentiary base supporting it. Um, on testing, it, you know, it's actually, it's interesting. Uh, so I ran a, a, a study in the early days of the pandemic in April, uh, looking for antibodies in the population in Santa Clara County, where I live, and in LA County, where uh, just south of, uh, you know, a few hundred miles south of me, um, the idea was to look and see how many people had been infected through early April 2020. Um, turned out to be about three or four percent of the population, which meant a few things. One, that uh, that the disease was already too far gone out of the barn uh, to, to, to ever get to zero. Right? There was, there was, it was, it was, it was 50 times more cases or infections than than public health knew about cases. Uh, the infection fatality rate in the community uh, was something like 0.2%, so 99.8% survival, and of course, it's much higher in nursing homes. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then, uh, we still had a long way to go on the pandemic. It was only two or three percent of the population. So, you know, if, if uh, Vinay's figure is right, it's 97%. Uh, we still had quite a ways to go in the pandemic. All those three lessons we knew from April of 2020. Uh, the U.S. CDC didn't run a study like this until midsummer. I have no idea why. 
it makes no sense that they relied on on uh, you know some some anonymous professor at, at Stanford University to run this study when they should have been the ones running this. Um, the uh, the Swedish authorities ran one very quickly in Stockholm, with seven percent prevalence in in April. Um, the 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 performance of the U.S. CDC is an absolute scandal compared to the performance of many many other public health authorities around the world, and I think the Swedish authorities is sort of the the, 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 uh, among the very best, uh, because they were trying to trying to ask the right questions, generate the right evidence to 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 see whether their response was 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 good or bad. Um, and uh, I, I think the fact that the U.S. CDC was so slow in getting basic information together and then responding appropriately to it is is really something that Americans should ask. Uh, it's not enough just for the CDC director to apologize and then ask for essentially more power and money um, to do more of the same. American, uh, the American people should ask for much better. The apology should include a plan to, to say what, what exactly went wrong, done independently, and then, uh, and then uh, a, a, a plan to, to make sure that it never happens again. Um, Dr. Uh, Arvind Cavale, MD, asks, this is, I'm going to address this one to Vinay because I know he's, I've seen him talk about this a lot. How do we educate the population about assessing their own personal risks going forward to prevent a one size, one size fits all measures? Well, you know, uh, it's a great question. And I guess uh, my point of view on this has been uh, uh, that this is a place in which the current administration has uh, done a poor job of communicating to the public what is to be expected. Um, I think uh, at this moment, it's clear that uh, there are three buckets of things you can do about COVID-19. Uh, there are things you do that can lower your risk of bad outcomes if, you know, and when you meet the virus. Uh, one of those things is if you haven't been sick from the virus before uh, and you're an adult, get vaccinated or lower the risk of bad outcomes you meet the virus. Second thing is maybe lose weight because we know obesity is a modifiable risk factor. Um, there are things you do that can uh, delay the time until you meet the virus. Uh, if you spend all your time at home uh, wearing N95 in a lot of uh, spaces, in public spaces, it'll delay the time until you meet the virus. Uh, but for me, that doesn't make that much sense anymore, uh, knowing that this virus is not going anywhere. And if you're not going to be able to sustain that uh, for year after year after year after year, uh, it's not a question of if you'll meet the virus, but when you'll meet the virus. And I think the CDC's messaging has been kind of confused about this. Um, really, I had always suggested that they adopt a strategy of uh, once you do what you can do to lower your risk of bad outcomes, uh, try to get back to life insofar as possible, as much as you'd like to. Um, but you'll have to try to find a sustainable balance. And so, you know, I disagree with, uh, I mean, I think people should always do what they feel comfortable with. And there should always be exceptional cases for people who are suffering from acute immunocompromised status, like you just received a medication such as rituximab, and you know it's gonna, it's not going to be in your body eight months from now. You might want to do something different. Um, you know, people have medical conditions might want to talk to their doctor. But the average healthy person, you know, I walk around San Francisco, I see twenty-year-olds uh, who appear to be very healthy outside wearing an N95 mask, and I think that that's part of CDC's messaging failure uh, that they think that's necessary or is going to help them some way. I think it's only a matter of time before they get infected. And when they do, thank goodness, the odds are in their favor. Um, Jim in Las Vegas has a question I'm going to direct to Joan. What were the impacts on the healthcare system in Sweden with the light policy? Isn't it a major benefit to hospitals for people to social distance and use masks to reduce the cases overloading the hospitals? 
Well, first of all, the overall picture um, was far superior to what we feared and most did. The, the uh, model inspired by Imperial College that I talked about said that at its peak, we'd have a um, basically 50 COVID pa 40 COVID patients fighting over every intensive care unit hospital bed because we would have would be so much under capacity. Um, that never happened. Uh, we always had an extra capacity of uh, around 20% in Sweden, not obviously geographically equally distributed, So, uh, but, but due to some heroic work also of scaling up, uh, we always had an extra capacity. Very big um, field hospital was uh, built here in Stockholm uh, to take care of patients that never had to open uh, because they never faced that that lack of capacity over there. So it worked out, uh, but obviously a terrible strain on staff and on hospitals who had to put in those extra hours and all that uh, energy under very difficult circumstances, but it, it worked out well. Um, then we did see less uh, patients in other areas in Sweden as well, because we did have uh, the recommended social distancing happening. So we had less of the, um, the regular flu and uh, other instances that might have uh, taken up some space in hospitals uh, as well. So uh, I don't think that experience in itself was um, was that different in Sweden than other places. I know in this Nature paper, there's uh, talk about uh, some newspaper reports in Sweden about how old people um, who had uh, special preconditions uh, that made it unlikely that they would be saved easily or cheaply that they were denied treatment in Sweden. And that has been discussed and uh, quite a lot in Sweden. But when you look at the number, the proportion of people with COVID who got hospital treatment, who got oxygen, intensive care in Sweden, it's about the same proportion as did, as uh, who got it in neighboring countries like Norway, Denmark, and Finland. So, um, that has not been a, a major issue when, for example, the Corona Commission has reviewed what happened in, in Sweden's policy. Um, I have a question here from Jeff Justice. This is interesting. According to Worldometer's, Worldometer's info, India did substantially better than Sweden, Europe, and the USA. Is this real? If so, can we learn from India? Does anybody know about it? I, I have, I'm not aware of that. Uh, Vinay, do you know anything about uh, whether India I think did that better? that's correct based on the numbers on that website, but I think that makes one wonder about the numbers on that website. Um, you know, I think there are nations that routinely in these rankings are exceptional, are doing much better uh, than other nations. And the first thing you worry is that they're not counting all the COVID-19 deaths. And I suspect that that's true in the Indian statistic that's on the world, the world, what was that called? World data meter? World World meters info. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they're okay, missing. Well, anybody else? No, I guess nobody else knows about that. Okay. Um, well, we're down to our last two minutes. So uh, somebody asked a question. I'm trying to find it here on this list of questions, but I'll, I'll remember what it was, which is why are we comparing 
the U.S. to Sweden when we're not comparing it to other countries like New Zealand, Australia, Singapore uh, that had uh, stricter policies? Um, I think I'm going to ask Gene to answer that because that is a good way of kind of bringing things full circle, giving some symmetry to our presentation uh, because we started off comparing Sweden to the world. And uh, so why didn't we compare the U.S. to countries that had more austere policies than Sweden? Gene. And and so they were talking about New Zealand and what were the other countries that they mentioned? Uh, Singapore, Australia, uh, okay. Japan, and so other countries talking that about, more Yeah, very different situations, islands where they could really control entry points. And in fact, New Zealand has basically one entry point. Um, and I think as when I was saying earlier, I mean, eventually that the, the virus is going to come around and now Australia is seeing that. But more than that, um, the question is, not just again in COVID deaths, but what does it do? What are the knock-on effects? What are the downstream effects of these lockdowns? So we want to look at, and, and, and I, I wanted to mention that for the person who raised the last question about India, what was the metric they were using? They were using, it sounds like COVID deaths. And again, if you don't live that long um, in certain areas of India, then you're not likely to see as many COVID deaths, but there's also the counting issue. And then there's the lack of paying attention to what um, the interventions cause, what kind of problems they led to. I couldn't resist because after you mentioned New Zealand being an island nation, Jay wrote a really interesting piece back uh, a few weeks ago in the in Spiked about New Zealand. Uh, and uh, why don't you just summarize your point, Jay, so I don't say it for you. Uh, sure. So, so the uh, New Zealand experience is really interesting. Uh, and I already went through some of the special circumstances of New Zealand. Uh, to, 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 uh, to that, I'll add another. The, the seating was very low, but to that, I'll add one other, which is that it's a, it's a South Pacific nation. Um, the disease hit in its summer, you know, our winter. It seems it's like a seasonal disease. It, it didn't spread, and they were very successful in, in getting rid of the disease from their island for a short time. Uh, but then over the next two years, they the disease kept coming back, one or three or seven cases, and they were locked down. Big cities again and again and again and again. Um, and uh, they kept the disease out for most of the most of uh, 2020 and 2021. Um, they were very delayed in deploying the vaccine. Uh, they really didn't get in earnest going in the vaccine uh, until September 2021. Uh, they kept the island under threat of lockdown long before uh, they that lo long after they needed to do that they if that when if they'd actually been uh vaccinating their population early on they could have uh, they could have avoided almost all of 2021 under under threat of lockdown and then finally uh and this is the irony of ironies uh the 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 number of cases in the last few months in in new zealand has absolutely exploded there's now more per cases per capita in new zealand throughout the entire pandemic in just three or four months um, than there were in the United States through the whole two and a half year pandemic. More cases in New Zealand per capita. Um, it's absolutely striking. That, so to me, that's it, it's uh, the, the, the way that they got out of this, the, really the thing that, that allowed them to avoid the, the, the deaths that other countries have faced was the vaccine. But they were delayed in deploying it. And finally, they could never have developed the vaccine on the island themselves. They needed other people to suffer cases. They needed other people to die so that they could get the vaccine to get out of this. It was essentially a beggar thy neighbor epidemiological policy. 
Um, and so I just, I think to characterize New Zealand as a model for anybody uh, misunderstands uh, the role that nations play together in managing a pandemic. They isolated themselves successfully because they could, and they got out of it as they could. Despite that, they put their population through at least a year additional of additional suffering around lockdowns that didn't never needed to happen. Well, that's a great note to end this conference on. This has been such an interesting uh, conversation. I'm sure we can go on for much uh, for many much more time. But I need I know that Joe needs to get his sleep. It's very late over there in uh, Stockholm, <laughs> and plus uh, we were scheduled for. Uh, an hour and a half. I really appreciate uh, our wonderful uh, panelists. Uh, this has been very lively and interesting. Uh, thank you for all the participants. There were too many questions uh, coming in for me to ask uh, even a, a small fraction of them. Uh, for those of you who missed some or all of this, it, it is being recorded and will be uploaded to the Cato Institute's website, cato.org. Uh, just go to past events and uh, you could view it uh, on demand. And uh, thank you all for, uh, for joining us. Have a great weekend.